Welcome to the Dream Mason Podcast. I'm your host, Alex Terranova. A dream mason is a person who's brave enough to declare they have a dream and committed enough to do the work to build it. I know we all have a dream mason inside of us, and my dream for this podcast is to support us by giving us a glimpse inside the hearts and minds of leaders, creators, and innovators to help us unleash our inner dream mason. Because your dreams don't build themselves. What's up and welcome back to the Dream Mason podcast. I'm your host, Alex Terranova. I am a Dream Mason, a performance and mindfulness coach. I work with leaders, creators, and innovators, those brave enough to build their dreams. If you're a high performer looking for an edge with a desire to expand your leadership, generate more money, more time, and feel more fulfilled, working with me will support you in making that life a reality. Now, if you haven't already, please support me and this podcast by subscribing and leaving a review on iTunes, Google Play, or YouTube. Follow me, Inspirational Alex, on Instagram, and please share this podcast with a friend. Welcome back to the Dream Mason Podcast. I'm your host, Alex Terranova. Today, my guest is, I mean, I want to say he's everywhere and he's endorsed by some big names, but currently he's the host and producer of a show that focuses on positive news. It's called Good Morning La La Land. It's the first live streaming daily talk show. He's also a happiness coach and author. He was the love coach on Famously Single on E. He's been on the Today Show, Good Morning America. He's been seen in magazines like Self, Health, and Glamour. He's worked as an executive coach for Microsoft, Fitbit, Capital One, and the big Mike Tyson knockout punch of endorsements. He's been endorsed by Oprah. Welcome, Robert Mack, or Rob, to the Dream Mason podcast. What's up, bro? Thanks for having me, my, my friend. I appreciate that so much. I love the Mike Tyson po- uh, knockout, Mike, <laughs> Mike Tyson punch. That's fantastic. Really fantastic. <laughs> Dude, you've done so much. And I mean, how, you know, we, we think of like happiness, not sorry, not happiness, but we think of like success as, you know, we see all these things on an outward level. We see like people reach these things and it's like, man, did they just do this overnight? And we know that that's not actually the case, but it's hard to ignore. How long have you been on this journey of, of all of creating all this? I feel like since birth, Alex, I feel like <laughs> since birth, man, like when I was born, I feel like I was born unhappy. And I know that's not true, but as long as I can remember, I was unhappy. And so from that day that I discovered I was unhappy and I was miserable and I was insecure and I was all these things, I began to work on it, sometimes consciously, sometimes unconsciously, unconsciously. but my entire life um, has sort of been uh, an experiment, I suppose, um, in what leads to a happy life and what doesn't. And so my work really revolves around you know, helping people access that infinite happiness that exists within them. And everything in my life has been, you know, sort of fodder. Um, and it's been um, fuel for that particular journey in this particular career that I'm currently, um, you know, living. When did you realize that it was, like happiness is a really big word, right? We use it. I actually just read this thing about it's kind of a garbage pale term, like, cause mm-hmm. we just always dump things into it. And it's not, 
I think that's kind of what we all want, which is why we use it so frequently. But when did you go from like, just living the life you were living to saying like, wow, I'm not, I'm actually not happy or not fulfilled or unsatisfied. Such a great question, man. I, so I would say that I was probably in my early twenties, maybe a little younger, you know, at first I was miserable and unhappy because of some stress in the household, you know, just growing up and like not being able to make friends and always wanted to be better at sports and always wanted to get the girl and not being able to do any of these things particularly well. And so I <laughs> thought it was all about that, man. I was like, oh, if I could just become a really great basketball player, I will get the girl and I'll have friends and I'll be happy. And then, you know, I improved my basketball skills and, you know, my, I did okay in school. And, you know, of course I'd never went pro or anything like that, but I did end up getting a great management consulting job and you know all these things happened I had the girl and you know I had some great money coming in and I was just becoming increasingly miserable despite you know the objectively um improving circumstances so I didn't um it was during that period of time sort of in my early 20s when I realized that objectively my life was excellent I mean really nothing to complain about and subjectively I felt terrible for it. You know, on the inside, I felt absolutely horrible for it. And on the outside, it looked perfect on paper. So it was that point that I decided, oh, you know, I think I'm going to commit suicide. I mean, literally, I just didn't really have the skills or the coping mechanisms. Um, and I didn't have the insight at that point um, where I can access the insight to see what was exactly going on within me. And so I basically got to a point where I was so depressed that I began to research ways to kill myself. And I decided, oh, I'm going to, you know, I'm going to slit my wrist. You know, I didn't have access to a gun. I didn't want to go about finding one and buying one and all that stuff. Didn't want to jump off a bridge. All these things felt very violent. Um, and somehow I came to the conclusion that slitting my wrist was going to be somehow less violent or less painful. Um, mm -hmm. And uh, so one day I went to the kitchen and I grabbed a steak knife and I um, just began to dug, dig it into my arm. And I was quite serious about it, something I'd been thinking about for years. The wild thing, the most interesting thing that happened, though, is I began sort of not just contemplating, but committing to killing myself is that I suddenly, for no good reason, experienced like this perfect peace and bliss like wash over me. Like in the very moment I'm digging this knife into my wrist and I still have the test marks on my wrist to this day. I experienced all this peace and all this joy and all this like, you know, perfect equanimity for no good reason. So at that point I was like, well, this is odd. Nothing has changed on the outside in terms of my life, you know, and, and nothing has changed in the world, so to speak, but something in the inside feels a little different. So I can put off the suicide thing for an hour, or two hours. And next thing you know, those hours slipped into a day, a day slipped into a week. And, you know, before long, I was just inch by inch, trying to dig myself out of this hole. It took many years to be quite honest. Wow. Thanks for, um, thanks for sharing that. Uh, I know you had shared with me that you had gotten to that point, but you had, hadn't actually shared the, the whole story with me. Yeah. Um, and it's funny, I was listening, like not funny as in haha funny, but in, in our, in what we have in common, uh, you know, people that listen to this podcast know that I describe my life similar. Like I was checking all the boxes you know, I had all the things and I was, I was building something and getting somewhere, but inside I was like whole and hollow and empty. Um, I mean, I'm really grateful. I never got to that point where I contemplated suicide. 
Mm-hmm. Um, but I think, I think it's really powerful when people like you who, who have made something of themselves who are successful, who have kind of turned the corner, share the story because I, I don't know what your experience was, but I know that so many people out there that are suicidal, like don't actually think that, you know, they think they're alone, that people don't understand. Um, so I think it's really powerful and important when people have gotten to the other side and share their journeys. Okay. So this is why you are so profound, Alex, because what you just described is the exact realization I came to with a little bit of research after this suicidal ideation period in my life. Like I base, I've started like looking out into the world and into um, a body of research called positive psychology. And I discovered mm-hmm. that most of the world um, and both developed and undeveloped nations or developing nations um, were really unhappy and had been coming increasingly unhappy since about the 1950s. And so there was what was, we call it the progress paradox that as life has gotten better, people have felt worse for it, you know, for the last 70 years or so. So even though technologically things are better and people are living longer, healthier lives, and even though, you know, we're continuing to raise the standard of living and all these fantastic things are improving the objective sort of standard of living and quality of life overall, Mm -hmm. subjectively speaking, you know, large parts of the population are feeling worse for it. So there's more anxiety, there's more um, access to um, stuff um, in terms of the DSM-4. There's more um, loneliness. There's um, less emotional regulation and more emotional dysregulation. You know, there's all this stuff going on at the same time. Depression, there's more bipolar depression. The average age of onset for the first bout of depression in 1950 was like 29 and a half years of age. And then in around 2000 or so, the average age of onset for the first bout of depression was 13 years of age. So that meant you have 13-year-olds or 14-year-olds that are hanging themselves from chairs, like 13 years old. And when I began to look out into the world and realize that I wasn't alone and that large parts of the world were feeling exactly the way I was feeling and that it had been going on for decades – um, I began to find a little bit of solace in that as well, that there wasn't something that was just wrong with me. You know, there was something obviously um, wrong with the way we are all approaching life. You have, I, correct me if I'm wrong, but I, I feel like I read this. You have a degree in positive psychology, right? That's right. Um, or is it a master's or a, was it? Yes. A yeah, it's a master's degree in applied positive psychology. Positive psychology really is the study and science of what makes life worth living. So they do, you know, thousands, they've, at this point, they've done tens of thousands of studies on what leads to happy life, what doesn't. Um, and then also what happens when you're happy? Like, how does that lead to increasing forms of success in your life, better health, better relationships? Um, so yeah, there's a program at Penn um, that offers this master's and that's the program that I um, matriculated into and graduated from. That's so cool. I actually just started taking a course online from the University of North Carolina on positive psychology. Um, I love that. I've been talking, I've been, you know, I'm, I'm trained as a coach on, as an ontological coach and I read a ton, but I've been, I've been talking about positive psychology for a long time. Like ever since I first heard about it, I never really knew what it was. And I always would think like, Hey, if I could go back to 18 years old and it's almost 20 years ago, um, (laughs) and, and do, you know, go, go through school again, knowing what I know now, that's what I would pick. So I think you're one of the first, there's not a lot of people that have degrees in or masters in positive psychology. Um, No, there's not. Yeah. It's a pretty um, rare and specialized degree. Um, And I'm so grateful for that degree because 
um, and, and really more than that, the program and the people um, in that program. Um, because, you know, they're out there um, sort of leading um, this movement around, you know, encouraging people to at least have the conversation and provide some empirical data around what makes for a life, you know, worth life, life worth living, what makes for a happy life, what is success, what isn't success, what leads to success, what doesn't lead to success. Um, but really it revolves around happiness. The thing, it's, it's really cool that we're onto this because I just started this. So I'm learning a ton as you're now. <laughs> the thing that I've gotten so far, just at the beginning of my experience with this is that happiness or fulfillment, you know, however we want to look at it, it's almost in a way like a muscle that we can build. Like we can actually use tools and exercises to, to almost strengthen it. Like, is it like, just like we do at the gym with our physical muscles Mm -hmm. and that the negativity won't ever go away. Like that's built in because that's what keeps us alive and safe, you know, to be cautious and and whatnot. But what we can do is build up the, the happy muscles to kind of tilt the scale. So it's not this, you know, negative brain bias that, that most of us are accustomed to. What do you, do you have some tools that, that have either worked for you or, you know, and, and if you agree with this, right. Cause I don't know that this is how you interpret it. This is what I've done. Do I, I, I love what you had to say there. And um, so I'm going to say that, so I feel like I'm always wearing two hats, at least two hats, Alex. And one hat is my positive psychology hat. And the other hat is almost the spiritual psychology hat. So I'd say that in terms of positive psychology, um, you know, without question, you can retrain and quote unquote reprogram or cultivate the mind so that you experience more happiness. And that does not mean, like you said, that you're going to be without any negative or uncomfortable and unhappy thoughts in your life. Okay, fair enough. Um, so that's, so that's <laughs> sort of step one. I think of this happiness thing at the deepest level, is at least a two-step journey. The, the first step is beginning to tell a better feeling story, essentially, about everything that's happening in your life. And you do that because you feel better. And when you feel better, believe it or not, you do better, right? So we know that based on science, happy people tend to have happier relationships. They tend to make more money, about six to $600,000 to $700,000 more, on average, over the course of their lifetime. They live six to seven years longer. Um, you know, they experience less job burnout, and all these things, right? And so... When you feel better, you do better. So in terms of positive psychology, you know, you're wanting to tell a better feeling story about everything in your life. There's lots of term, uh, terms and terminology we use to describe that from a scientific perspective, like resilience and optimism. But really, it's about telling a better feeling story based in truth about everything in your life, including yourself. Okay. So that's the first step. We'll call it positive thinking and positive feeling. My positive psychologist friends will hate me for saying that, but I just want to put it, spell it out as simply as possible, right? <laughs> <laughs> the second step, which I feel is the much more, um, well, you almost need to take that first step to get to the second step. The second step is no thinking. It's non-thinking. It's no mind. And, you know, this is what a lot of, you know, Buddhist traditions and even mystical Christian traditions and poets and philosophers have been talking about for thousands of years. And it's really about stepping aside from the mind altogether and experiencing the quiet, calm, cool, collected place where inside of yourself where, you know, there is very few thoughts um, and so that's an entirely different sort of conversation. Um, but at the end of the day, I would say that the most deeply fulfilled, happiest people I know know how to turn on and off their mind when they want. And so it is about training the mind. And you can look at both of these scenarios, both the quote unquote positive thinking and the no thinking as training the mind um, or reprogramming the mind 
Absolutely. Um, does it mean that you're going to be, you know, um, without negative thoughts um, forever for the rest of your life? Of course not. Do you need to be? No, because you, it's just about developing a different relationship with those thoughts. So in the same way that you watch a movie, and maybe when you're a small child, you watch a movie and you're so absorbed in the movie that you take everything for reality and you become so consumed and obsessed with what's happening and you identify with the characters and it's all a big dramatic scene and you go to sleep that night and you have a nightmare about it and you're concerned. There's monsters under the bed, this whole thing. That's like our experience at first when we're not that evolved psychologically, emotionally, or spiritually. We take our thoughts and we take what's happening in the world very, very seriously. And that's not to say that you shouldn't take it sincerely because you can take it sincerely, but not seriously. It doesn't have to, it doesn't have your, your peace and love and joy and happiness doesn't have to depend on these things. It doesn't have to depend on what's happening in the world or what's happening in your mind or even your emotional, um, you know, in, inside emotionally. So that's um, really, if I were to sum it all up, it's really about developing a different relationship um, with your thoughts and with your emotions that's the, that's the second step. The first step is really just changing your thoughts and emotions altogether. Do you think that like living in a society like, you know, the United States or, or major cities, anywhere in the world, um, and not, you know, I think if we were a, a monk in a cave somewhere, it, it could potentially be easier to silent your, you know, uh, silence your mind. Um, I've never heard, you know, obviously we practice like quieting and, and there's a lot of things around meditation and yoga, but like actually having a silent mind, you think it's possible to cultivate that in, uh, in an atmosphere like the United States? Hmm. Yeah, it's a great question, Alex. And it's interesting because, you know, I, uh, as you mentioned, I do this, this morning show called Good Morning La La Land. And, you know, I work with um, one of the co-hosts as a doctor of divinity. And she and I are always talking about the possibility the opportunity to go off to Bali or the Himalayas and just retire there forever, like just drop off the grid, right? And we all sort of yeah. play with this idea in the world. Sure. And it's and the interesting thing is, is that if you've ever even had a partial experience of that, you can go to a beach, go to Hawaii, go to you can go to Miami, go to anywhere that you can spend sort of inordinate amounts of time just in quiet on the beach somewhere, and you'll discover how much stress and anxiety you take with you and create for yourself even in paradise, right? And so um, in, in, in one in sort of in, in one way, yes, it feels more difficult because life is so complex here in the States or, um, you know, in large parts of, um, you know, sort of um, the developed world. And that being said, the real issue and the real problem isn't so much what's happening outside of you as it is what's happening ins- inside of you. It's, it's your interpretation and perception that you have about it all that's creating most of the stress and anxiety in your life. And, um, you know, if you were to take yourself, you know, if you were to go to anywhere else in the world, the most quiet, serene place, you could go to a monastery, an ashram, you would quickly discover how much more painful and stressful and anxiety-ridden you felt in that place as well. You'd always find something. Um, and it just takes a little bit of, um, you know, a trip here or there, where you sort of toy with this idea for a little bit and did before you discover that the real stress and anxiety and the unhappiness is in you, not in the world. I love that you said the interpretation, which is, yeah. is I think, I think really powerful. I do a ton of work on my, with myself and with my clients on like life happens, right? It's, mm-hmm. it's just life is constantly happening, but nothing is, nothing inherently has meaning. Yes. And it's that interpretation. So what I heard you say is like, wherever you go, 
whether it be, you know, in a cave or a rock falls on your foot or you stub your toe or you suddenly feel lonely or whatnot, or whether you're here and you have a boss yelling at you, it's all about how you interpret it versus what's actually happening. Oh my gosh. That's it. That's totally it. No question about it. How do you, Jeremy, um, is it, you know, obviously I think there's the, the things that we all know about things like, you know, you know, prayer or meditation or, you know, noticing the way you're thinking yoga is, you know, about connecting mind and body and, and kind of getting quiet and just being with yourself. Are there other things that you tell people know of or, or could share that would help people that are kind of beginning on this journey? Absolutely. Boy, so much, Alex, and uh, you and I've had um, talked a little bit about this. I, okay. So I'm going to break it down into the two steps. So we talked about the positive thinking step. And that step is really about telling a better feeling story about everything and everybody in your life and doing it all the time, no matter what. <laughs> like that's the most important thing you could probably do in the very beginning is just start there. When you cannot, yeah, you're just, tell, you're just telling it. Like when you, it's like when you're out in the world and I'm talking about, you know, my life, I'm just focused on telling a better story than I would have done it in my default. Yes. And it's a better feeling story and it's got to be based on truth. So for instance, when I first started this on this journey, I thought, wow, the world is really unhappy. The world has never been unhappier in the history of humankind. <laughs> right. That was like literally like my thought, like, whoa. And then I instantly realized, oh my goodness, I just contributed to the unhappiness of the world through that story. So then I said, what's equally or more true a story that feels better to me? And instantly I thought, well, that the opportunity to be to be happy is greater now than ever, you know, and the desire for happiness is greater now than ever. And people's interest and commitment to being happy is greater now than it's been in the history of humankind. That feels better to me, and it's equally true, and it's based in truth, you know. But it's something that you have to kind of personalize and customize for yourself because that statement that may not resonate as true for someone else, or may not feel make somebody else feel you know better in the way it made me feel better. And so, you know, that's a perfect example. Or, you know, another example is like people are always usually complaining about other people. Like I think it was Paul Sarte that said, you know, other people are hell, you know. And the interesting thing is that it's true to some extent for some people. Um, that being said, people are also a fantastic opportunity to practice unconditional love, unconditional happiness, and unconditional peace. And I think of people, particularly the worst of people, um, the worst of people on this planet as personal trainers for my soul. I don't like to think that the soul needs perfected, but it's a personal trainer for my unconditional peace, my unconditional happiness and my unconditional love. And if I can remember that, that they're all training me to be unconditionally happy, peaceful, and loving, all of a sudden I see them in a better feeling way. It's like, you know, it doesn't have the same kind of negative impact on me. And so that's the first step. When you can't tell a better, better feeling story based in truth about somebody or something, you want to just look for something better feeling to focus on altogether, right? So, if, you know, it's like Hitler. What are you going to say about that, okay? On one hand, you could say, tell a better feeling story and say, oh my gosh, we have learned that lesson so well and so deeply that we are more committed now than ever to not putting leaders in positions where they can have that kind of negative impact on the world or whatever. But if you can't do that, you say, I just, it's too raw. It's too fresh for me. I don't, you know, I can, there's no better feeling story. I can tell right now. I don't have access to that better feeling story. You can simply look in a different direction, you know, pet your cat, you can go for a walk. You can do some things that, you know, 
will make you feel better. And when you feel better, believe it or not, you'll be in a better position to tell a better feeling story about that awful thing or that awful person, or it will not be nearly as relevant to you. It would be moot now um, in a way that it wasn't before. So look for things to appreciate, tell better feeling, appreciative, um, sort of appreciation focused stories. Um, I'd say a third thing is just notice the things that naturally inspire, uplift, and excite you. You know, create a little um, happiness list. And when you feel like you're struggling, when you feel unhappy, commit to doing one of those things, whether you feel like it or not. So for me, going for a walk, believe it or not, is extremely helpful. My mom used to tell me all the time when I was feeling down, honey, you should really go for a walk. And I said, oh my gosh, what's a walk going to do? How's that going to fix like this proposition of life like thing that I have going on, this existential angst thing? And she's like, honey, just do it for me, okay? If you love me, just do it. I'd go for a walk and I'd come back and be like, oh my God, she's right again. You know, 55th day in a row, she told me to do this. And I finally, you know, did it. So um, those are the top three things I'd say, you know, to start telling a better feeling story based on truth about everything and everybody all the time, including yourself. When you can't do that, distract yourself, focus on things that feel better when you focus on them. And then third, create a list, happiness list of things that with very little time, energy, or effort, inspire you, uplift you, excite you, and make you feel happy, you know? It's so, it's so cool when we do things unknowingly. Like, I, I'm a believer that, that it's all within us already. It's not actually about discovering what's, what, what we're here for. It's really about remembering, you know, what our soul is here for. And you're sharing this, and I didn't know this. You know, I, I shared my story with you that one of the things when I realized, like, I had to change my life, one of the things I did, I was running a restaurant group at the time, was I said, I'm going to be positive no matter what. Mm-hmm. And a lot of people thought, and I, I just made this up, right? Like, I didn't know what I was doing. I had no experience. No book told me to do it. And I, um, I remember people thought I was crazy. Like, they mm-hmm. were like, thought I had just lost my mind. How can he be positive no matter what? He's just lying or it's fake. You know, there was a lot of that. You know, this is just fake. And I remember doing exactly what you said. So in running this restaurant group, you know, I'd walk in and restaurants are, I know you used to do what, nightclubs, right? Like hospitality. Yes. And so, you know, it's like, it's, it's either, um, you know, it's, it's either we're, we're kind of like living off our impulses and like getting like, you know, these addictions almost met or it's like negativity. And I remember walking in and, and, and this one time, like, Hey, another, another manager quit. And normally the response would have been like, oh, we got to start the search again. We got to do this thing. And I was in that, hey, positive no matter what. And just being like, great, we're going to find somebody so good. This is an opportunity to get a great person in. And at the time, oh, it was totally fake, right? Mm-hmm. Like that wasn't my natural default response. Mm-hmm. But like if you're a lefty and you start dribbling a basketball with your right <laughs> hand, it's fake also because that's not your natural. You're trying to learn a different thing. You're trying to become better on the right hand. I was trying to become more positive. Wow. And it works. It's cool to hear like you have this uh, experience teaching it from a, I want to say from a science background, from an educational background. Alex, that is so poignant. What you just said is so poignant on so many levels, but there's two themes I want to underscore here because they are just so powerful. One theme is, is that you're right. Um, I, like you, believe everything we need or want in the world is already within us. And you only find in the world that which is what, you know, that which you recognize within yourself. So like whatever it is you're looking for in the world, it's already inside of you. 
Okay, so 100% believe that, agree with that. And I want to go into a little bit more detail on that a little bit later. The second thing is, um, to that end, is that you're right. Like, because everything is within us, when we access that insight or that deep intuitive knowledge and awareness, you know, these things come out of us that for other people, it's taken them, you know, years of, you know, education or something else, you know, reading books or whatnot to access, but we're able to access it immediately. One of the problems and I think challenges that most people have and one of the greatest opportunities is to trust that which you intuitively know. You know, because I think we always have these intuitive leanings, but we just don't trust them. And so one of the things that helped me trust those intuitive leanings was seeing some of the science and empirical data behind it. I'm such a logical thinker. It takes me a lot to trust what I'm feeling instead of what I'm just simply thinking. And so that was one of the benefits of the positive psychology program for me um, and the positive psychology research that I've done is really to remind me that feeling good, that it's good to feel good. That's the most important thing. You know, life is very short. It's very long. If you're not enjoying the ride, man, what a waste of time and energy and effort, right? So that's the first thing. It's good to feel good. Secondly, though, when you feel good, you do good. Like things happen for you. Things go better for you. And so I needed to kind of have both of those pieces of data or both. um, I needed to trust in both of those things that it was good to feel good. And then also that it was good for me and good for other people for me to feel good. And, you know, just knowing that I was, that when I was happier, I was going more likely to make more money and I was more likely to be healthier and I was more likely to get into a relationship if I want one and stay in a relationship if I want to and get married if I want to and be happy in all my relationships, whether I'm married or not. Like all of that data helped me trust these intuitive leanings that I had. And then one day you can say, oh, well, you could put all the academia aside and just trust that what you need to know is inside of you all along. I love that you've got us to trust because I know for me, trust is probably one of my most repetitive ongoing practices Mm. to continue to, to develop more and more trust in myself. And I think for some people that might be crazy to hear what do you mean? But if you think about like how often we say we're going to do things and we don't do them, I'm going to get up tomorrow and I'm going to go to the gym. I'm going to eat healthy today. I'm going to talk to my boss about this. I'm going to write that book. I'm going to do that report, whatever it is. And we don't. And we break promises with ourselves constantly. And for how many years? Yeah. I know for me, just over the last few years, I have had to do this constant work about learning to re-trust myself. And it starts with little things. For me, at least, you know, choosing, hey, I'm going to say I'm going to do something and do it. And then get present, like, hey, you did that thing that you said. Yeah. Like rebuilding that muscle. Such, such a good point. And I love this point, you know, um, you know, with lots of my clients, particularly I'd say all, all my clients, but particularly the executive um, coaching clients, you know, they struggle with this because, you know, based on science, we know, or at least we believe based on science that there's this limited or finite bank of willpower. And um, <laughs> we often exhaust that willpower very quickly. And the more decisions you make during the, during the day, the more decision fatigue you experience. And before long, all of a sudden, you can't even prevent yourself from eating the entire bag of M&Ms or potato chips, whatever it is that you plan not to do. And so, you know, th- th- so th- th- there's that part. One of the things I've discovered, so, so to that end, in terms of keeping promises to yourself, one of the things that you can do is try to access or write checks on that bank of willpower first thing in the day before you're overdrawn on that account, right? So do all the hard stuff 
first thing of your day, all the promises you want to keep, try to get that over and done with first. Um, now, there's a deeper, bigger sort of theme here as well, which is that, you know, at the, at the end of the day, the question often revolves around, were you truly committed to the things you wanted or said you were committed to, or were you just kind of interested? And I've discovered, we've all probably discovered, that so much of what we think we want to commit to or that we promise ourselves to do is not something we're genuinely committed to doing for all kinds of reasons. Oftentimes, part of it's programming and there are ideas that other people say we should do. So we feel this, you know, we're conscientious people and we feel some guilt around it. So we think we should do it and we want to follow through with it. But a lot of the challenge and the opportunity that exists for keeping promises with yourself is recognizing and realizing what you genuinely wholeheartedly are committed to versus that which you're just interested in or what you think somebody else or somebody else has imposed on you. And so we often make break the promises that we're not fully, deeply, truly, authentically committed to because they're not our own to begin with. They were imposed on us by someone else and we just accepted them as our own. And so, you know, a, a lot of my life has been uh, sort of revolved, has revolved around really getting clear about, you know, what do I want to do? Not what I should do, right? Not what other people think I should do, not what the right thing is or the wrong, like none of that, drop all that. What is the thing that's most important to me that I feel deeply, truly, authentically moved and inspired and excited to do? And that thing I'll commit to and everything else is up for grabs. But I call that discipline. that lots of other people call it discipline too. But I've kind of let go of this idea of discipline and I really try to replace it with this idea of discipline. Like if I'm not deeply, truly, authentically moved, inspired and excited to do it, I question whether or not it's my goal or it's somebody else's goal that I've imposed on myself or let them impose on me. I've never heard discipline before <laughs> and, it, and it's great. I know, I mean, once you see it, right, once you see the, all the, the, all of us, including ourselves running around doing all the things we should do or we're supposed to do, whether it's based on our, you know, our job, our religion, our society, our parents, whatever. Um, God, it's like we're, we're slaves to, to conditioning. That's it. This should monster. Basically. Yeah. Yeah, totally. Um, we always joke, um, on the show, you know, gotta stop shooting on yourself <laughs> and it's, mm-hmm. and it's true. It's, um, you know, and what's interesting is this is when often when you drop the should and you commit to doing that, which you authentically want to do, not that what you should do when you, you often do discover, you come back around to some of the things that you thought you should do, but didn't feel you really wanted to do. And you discover later that you actually really do want to do those things. But now it's com- you're coming from a place of a completely different angle with really pure, positive energy, you know, where, as before, because you hadn't explored it deeply and fully, you know, you were sort of even divided about it. You know, we have this um, term in, in psychology, just cognitive dissonance, which means your mind is in conflict with itself. You may not realize it, it might be at, at an unconscious level, but the only reason we don't follow through with anything is because our mind is divided. The mind is divisive. It's never decisive. Um, you know, when, when we decide things, we usually make that decision at a very, at an emotional level. And then we backfill it with data as opposed to making logical decisions. That's a sort of misconception a lot of us have, but the idea is that the mind um, is a place where there's lots of conflict. And so when you find yourself saying one thing and doing something else, because deep inside your mind, you're conflicted about it and you haven't explored it deeply enough to 
discover what's real about it, what's not real about it, what's you, what's uh, society or other people. Um, and so it's a really, really pro- like interesting topic, Alex, and I love, love your take on it. You know, for me personally, my, my mind is constantly disagreeing with itself. <laughs> um, yeah, that, that, uh, I'd heard that the cognitive dis cognitive dissonance. Yes. Yeah. And I never, thanks for explaining it really well and really simply. Um, I want to, uh, sorry, I'm like thinking about you. We've just touched on so many cool things and, um, I am curious cause I, I think what, you know, what you do, especially the way you do it, like there's a lot of love and self-love and, and happiness in, in everything you're doing and everything you talk about. And as a man in this world, it kind of is the opposite of everything we're taught. Mm. Right. Like I, I always think if you were an athlete, if you were tough, if you were a smart kid, but if you were a man, it was kind of like either use your brain to figure it out, practice harder get better. If you fall down, walk it off. Don't cry, run it off, do something, but whatever you do, don't feel your feelings. Don't be vulnerable. You know, happiness isn't that important. Work hard. What do you, what do you, you know, when it, as a man doing this, what do you see that might be, you know, different or more challenging for men specifically? Not, not to compare men versus women, but really, you know, as a man, you can speak to it. Yeah. It's a great, great question, Alex. I would, I, you know, I would say that first, um, you're absolutely right. Um, you know, this idea of what a man is and what a man should be, uh, I think we've all, we're all raised on. And it's, it's one of the beautiful things about sort of this, um, generate the next generation here and is that, you know, they're, they're, they're so much more flexible and adaptable, um, and open and receptive in that way. And there's a softer orientation, um, to life in lots of ways. Um, in other ways, are, it's a harder orientation, but particularly around the masculinity thing, I think there is a uh, sort of a new um, sort of theme or a new version um, of masculinity sort of being defined and described um, that includes things like emotional te- intelligence and self-awareness and, um, and, and positive communication and love and warmth and all these other things that I think growing up, we, uh, at least I wasn't, um, encouraged or rewarded, um, for being or doing. And so, um, that's the first thing I think I would say, you know, the second thing is, is that, um, you know, I think, um, well, part of that is redefining what strength is, right? So, you know, I, I always thought of strength as being just so strong and so solid and essentially unbreakable, Um, but I do realize over time that it's the flexibility that makes you so strong. Um, you know, if you, if you, if you break and can't bend every time you have an argument, every time somebody gets mad, every time you don't do well at something, um, you know, that's not real strength. Uh, That's just, you know, strength, uh, weakness masquerading as strength. And so I I would, I would, I would say that, um, as well, you know, it's a, it's a, um, it's, it's an interesting concept, um, just masculinity itself and, I was working on a workshop with a woman and we were putting together, you know, um, just this idea of like, how can men and women work more collaboratively and harmoniously together? And one of the conversations that came out of that was just this, this performance-based love notion, right? So I'd say that one theme that's operated uh, most dysfunctionally in my life around sort of 
um, being a man and masculinity has been this performance-based love that, you know, from a very early age, you're often under the impression um, that your love or being loved is based on your performance, your ability to perform. So whether it's, um, you know, with academics, whether it's with athletics, whether it's socially, whether it's with women, whatever it is, you have this very conditional notion of love. And women experience that in their own way as well, right? That, and sometimes it's, it's, sometimes it's performance-based, sometimes it's beauty-based, sometimes it's other things, but it's a conditional kind of love. And at the end of the day, I'd say that whether we're talking about men or women um, or, um, you know, any other living entity on the planet, it's really about prioritizing unconditional love and unconditional self-love, um, the, the kind that isn't contingent or dependent on things going your way or not, right? And so um, for me, I think that ultimately... Um, is how I would define um, like the most authentic, truest kind of masculinity or femininity. It's just an appreciation, recognition, and celebration of your perfect lovability. For, I think it's, I talk about it a lot and I think it's coming up and it's in this, you know, conversation we're having um, the term toxic masculinity. Yeah. And I've been talking about it a lot recently with people who almost seem to be like offended by it. Like it's like, it's somehow offensive. And one of the things I'm curious to get your take, because one of the things I've been trying to explain better and better is it's not about reducing our masculinity. It's not about making men not masculine. This isn't like, Hey, let's have men be like women or whatever. That's not what that, that is. It's about, I, I, I think you kind of touched on it with the strength. It's about seeing that, hey, it's not all about the aggressiveness and the machismo and the, the um, I want to say, the overcompensation of masculinity. It's actually about making us more whole and more rounded. It's, it's uh, masculinity, I almost want to say, you kind of said it, like from love, from yeah. trust, from connection. You bring up such a great point because, gosh, Alex, I just love this conversation with you. I love all these conversations with you. Like, you know, it's, um, and, I, and I get it, you know, um, words trigger people and they trigger people for all kinds of reasons, usually um, because there's some kind of programming or conditioning there. But I, I've, um, I would agree with you. I think at the end of the day, you know, whether we're talking about um, toxic masculinity or toxic femininity or whatever it would, might be, you know, part of the opportunity, the challenge and the opportunity, I think for all of us is to redefine what it means on one hand to be human. Um, and, and then on the other, um, what it means to be power, let's just say, call it powerful. We can take any word, but it could be powerful or confident. Um, and for me, it means to be unshakable and unbreakable and unconditional and indestructible and immovable. And, when you are clear about that, when you recognize that within yourself, you, you are not, there's no reason for you to be aggressive. There's no reason for you to be loud. There's no reason for you to take advantage of someone else because you know deep inside yourself is perfect confidence, perfect harmony, and an inexhaustible supply of anything and everything you need. That is communicated consistently as warmth, as compassion, as love. It's only fear that, that lends itself to extreme aggression to violence to you know dominating someone else so that you can feel higher than them or better than them i mean all these concepts are really um they, and all these and all the behavior that we see that's indicative of that 
of, of, of that kind of like toxic masculinity at the heart of it is really, it's just fear. And that's not wholeness and that's not completeness. That's a, that, that's a, that's a misperception. It's a um, misperception of your wholeness or your completeness. It's believing that you're not whole, that you're not complete. And if you were, if you knew that you were, you would never think that you could get something within yourself by taking it from someone else. You would never think that you could make yourself better off by taking something from someone else. You, as, you know, you wouldn't think that you need to take your power back. You know, none of that makes sense. So I agree with you completely. I think at the end of the day, that's why it's impossible. I feel to really, um, you know, psychology is very helpful, but I think it's nearly impossible. if not perfectly impossible to make sense of any of this or to find any real solutions without spirituality, you know, and we might not call it spirituality. We might call it meditation. We might call it prayer um, or not. We might call it something else, just, you know, seeking the peace within, but it's very difficult to find agreement or harmony with anybody for very long. If your mind is always noisy and if there are always thoughts inside, you know, if you're always stuck in this place of duality, you know, duality by its very nature is good and bad, is good and evil. And by its very nature, it's always in conflict. That's what duality is, two poles that, you know, are opposite ends. So I, I don't think there's really temporary solutions. You know, you can have a gap between two wars or a gap between two arguments, but that to me isn't real peace. That's not real love. It's just a break in time, you know. Yeah, what I get like in listening to that is if we actually aren't these things within ourselves. Right? If we're not confident within ourselves, if we don't trust ourselves, if we don't love ourselves, if we don't like ourselves, if we're afraid of ourselves or, or whatnot, like it's all going to get mirrored on the outside. So if, if I can't even be with myself lovingly, then of course I'm going to be shaken by the first person that you know triggers me or sets me off. Total mic drop. Total mic drop. That's exactly it. That's exactly. And, and the reason that we can't love ourselves or like ourselves or be comfortable with ourselves is because we don't know ourselves. Like to even like to, if you ever had the conversation and you asked someone, just define for me, if you can, yourself. That, that in of itself. What is the self? What is yourself? What is that? And he's like, quickly, you start eliminating things, but you don't really ever come up with something that is the self. You can say, well, uh, is, it, is it certainly not your job? That's changed over time. It's not the power, prestige, or money that you have. We know all those things aren't who you are. They don't define you. Um, is it the body? And saying, well, no, the body's changed since I was a little kid, since I was a baby. I started out this small and now I'm this big. And I've gone up and down in weight and all these things have changed. Is that, but there's something that inside there that's, that's maintained or remained the same. What is that? You say, well, it's not the body. Is it the mind? It's like, no, I have different thoughts all the time, but there's something behind that, beyond that, that's remained the same all the time, that's perfectly changeless, that's unchanging. What is that? And you eventually come around to saying, well, the closest I can get to it is an energy, it's a presence, it's an awareness behind, beyond that transcends all of that, that includes the body, includes the mind, includes all these other things, but it's just so far beyond it, bigger than any of those things. And until you come to a recognition of that, until you quote unquote spend time with that or remain as that, no real solution is ever possible. No real, but, but, and then as you do that, as you come to know this self, right, and that's what meditation essentially is or prayer essentially at the highest level essentially is when you come to know this self or remain as this self, right? All of a sudden you don't have to come up with solutions because there are no problems. What problem is there? There's no problem. If you're not a body, you're not a mind, you're just awareness or presence or consciousness in itself. In what ways can you be destroyed? 
In what ways can you be moved or shaken? In what ways can any damage be done to you in, a, in any way that would actually touch you? you can't even, it's untouchable. So at the deepest level, and that's, that's not just me from a spiritual perspective speaking. That's, you know, me from, you know, just from a physics perspective. I mean, that's just energy. Where it's, at the end of the day, one thing we all can all agree to is that we're energy. Energy can't be created, can't be destroyed, only changes form. So if we're clear about that, and not just clear from an intellectual place, but from a deep knowing place where you experience that, you are that, um, you recognize yourself as that, there's no problem. Man, I'm like sitting here, I'm like, we could run on for another hour, two hours. We could just keep going. It's like every, every, everything you put, it just, I want to roll into a whole nother segment of the conversation. Mm. Um, we're not going to do that because I think people that are listening might be mad at us. They might say, <laughs> but, well, we can continue but, on Good Morning La La Land. Yeah. And I'm like, we got we to gotta do another one of these. And there's just so much. And I love what you're saying. It's, it's also really cool. It's going to be my first rapid fire question to you because when you said, who are you or define self? I feel I actually got really grateful because at that moment, my mentors actually, a lot of my mentors in, in, as a coach and personal development, like taught me an exercise that was a way to define who we actually are. Mm. Like when you said it, I was like, oh, I know exactly who I am. Well, I've also had it tattooed on me. So, I, so whenever I forget, I can look at my arm and, mm. and read the words right off. Um, but I was, but it wasn't an easy, you know, it's an exercise and, and I, you actually have to buy into it, right? That that when you said it, I was really clear, like I am warrior, play, heart, light, love, joy, spirit. Um, and, and some people might not get that or might not find anything, but for me, it's really clear. Yeah. And when I forget who I am or when I go into my ego or when I get angry, sometimes I just have to look and go, wait, this is who you are. Remember. Um, so I'm going to make you answer your own question. Okay. If you had to define yourself as our first rapid fire who are you? What's your, mm. you define yourself. So, so, so many answers to that, but I'd say silence, right? So silence would be my first answer. And I'd say one, one with God and essentially that whatever it is that God is, and it's perfectly undefinable and indescribable. I am that, right? So presence, consciousness, awareness, well, all are synonyms, but one with life. How about that? It's life itself. Nice. Yeah beautiful um if there was one person out there that you could help support you think you could make a big difference for who might it be myself nice what's your so this is a two it's a two-part question then you got to get the second part probably to answer the first but what's your next goal your next big goal that's going to require you to either have some big breakthrough or overcome some challenge associated with yourself to achieve it. Hmm. Say finish the four books that I'm like 95% done with. <laughs> it's mind blowing. Sometimes this, the hardest things are the simplest things. Yeah, certainly. Um, yeah. The four, and, and what's interesting is I think I had a breakthrough just on the call with you because we're talking. I, I just had a little breakthrough. So I'd say finishing those books. Would you share? You, you don't have to. You yeah. Yeah. It's, um, so the breakthrough for me is, so I've written these books, four of them, and I'm 95% done. And, and you know this as well as anyone. When, you're, when you love to grow and learn as much as we do, 
if you put something on the shelf and you come back a few months later or God forbid, a few years later, you look at what you've written or said and it looks like an elementary school student's writings, right? Like, I'm like, wow, like I, this is not, no, this is not, this is not the truth. There's a deeper truth. So you want to, of course, like start from scratch and this whole thing. But I discussed, but I thought about something and it's two things I've, you remind me of. One is compassionate concessions. So a compassionate concession essentially is what any teacher, it's the way any teacher talks to you when they want to give you meat, but you only have the digestive system to assimilate milk or water. Like you're not ready for the meat. They can't give you the meat. You can't, you're just going to vomit that back up on them. You're not going to understand it at all. So a compassionate concession is points that you concede as a teacher in order for your student to get to where you are eventually. So for instance, you might say to them, um, you know, you would say something like, um, well, um, that's your mother and that's your father. And that's true at one level. And then, but the spiritual teacher really wants to say to you, you have no father, you have no mother, your father, and your mother is life itself. It's God itself. It's really what they want to say, just hypothetically. They can't say that to you right away. You're going to freak out. You're five years old, right? <laughs> so I'm thinking like in terms of the books I've read, like, you know, how have I gotten to where I am now? I'd say, well, I've read a lot of books that were all incredibly helpful, but they couldn't give me the truth 100% undiluted, unfiltered, or I would have rejected it and probably left the path altogether and said, forget this. I'm going to go drinking and do drugs. And like, <laughs> I can't, I don't know what they're talking about, right? So that's the one realization for me is that you just meet people with where they are. Just meet them where they are. And that doesn't mean you have to get it perfect. Um, but the other thing is too, is that um, simplicity and brevity is king and queen as the case may be. So the most powerful books I've ever read have been books that have been four or five pages long. Ramana Maharshi's Who Am I? That book is like five pages long. It's a pamphlet. But it's one of the most powerful books I've ever read. So simplicity, brevity um, are king and queen. Rob, um, man, I feel like I just got, uh, this, this, just this, this, but I just want to do more of this. Um, yes, let's do like, it. I'm down. I feel like friends. I learned so much. Um, and it just got me, this conversation just has my wheels spinning and I'm actually like, you know, you said earlier, it's like when we're happier, we do more. Like it got me happy. Like just the conversation got me happy, got me inspired, got me excited. Um, thanks for your your willingness to be so open, your vulnerability, your, your joy, your play. Um, there's like an effervescence in your being. Thanks for just sharing that. And it, it's, it's palpable. You can feel it over here. We're not in the same space right now, but like I can feel it um, over, you know, the internet and whatever we want to say. Um, but thanks for bringing that to, to this podcast, to me, to my guests. Thanks for just all the, it's like the, the light and the love that you, that you beam and that you share. Um, I fully receive that. Thank you. And I just want to tell you, I have a shiver test. When I feel a soul connection with someone, my whole body gets chills. And it's like 80 degrees in my apartment right now. I've got a sweatshirt <laughs> on. I don't know why. And I'm freezing, dude. So that's just a testament to you and the light and the love that you shared with me. Thank you so much. I love who you are. I love what you do, man. And I'm just looking forward to continuing the conversation in any and every way we can. Truly grateful for you, man. Thank you. Thanks for saying that. I appreciate of course, it. Man. Uh -huh. um, last but not least. Yeah. 
how do people, how would you like people if they want to look you up, if they want to reach out to you, if they want to watch you, what are the best ways? Yeah. So, uh, folks can find me at, um, coach my website. Always send me a message through there. And you can also reach me, um, over all social media platforms at Rob Mac official. Uh, you can always catch me on good morning, Lala land nine to 10 AM Pacific time on all social uh, media platforms. Those are the best ways. Awesome. And, uh, I'll see you soon. And, uh, I'll see you in LA soon. And I, uh, again, I, I just, I appreciate you so much. And, uh, thanks again. Brother, I appreciate you, man. I mean that, dude. This is like a highlight of this year. No question. Thank you. Thank you, buddy. Thanks for listening to another episode of the Dream Mason Podcast. Please subscribe to the Dream Mason Podcast so you don't miss an episode. Share it with a friend and give us a review on iTunes. I am grateful to have had you here. If you want more, you can follow or reach out to me, Alex Terranova, on Instagram at inspirationalalex or at thedreammason.com or email me at alex at thedreammason.com. And remember, you are a dream mason because your dreams don't build themselves.